Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined again by Chacham Mordechai Ish Yemini, who is backed by popular demand. A student of Chacham Josefa Ur, he learned in Mir Yeshiva, Torah Or, and Merkaz Arav before being ordained by the rabbinate. A father of four, he built and now lives on a peripheral farm in Gush Etzion, located in the lush Judean hills of Israel, where he raises sheep and chickens and grows olive and pomegranate trees. Chacham Mordechai's podcast, Fostat, available on Spotify and Apple, as well as his YouTube channel, Gorilla Judaism, provides a brave and unsafe space to explore the legacy, ideology, and principles of the Torah according to Maimonides in history and contemporary times. In addition to his principal teachings, Chacham Mordechai analyzes the weekly Torah portion, holidays, and current events in the context of Maimonidean principles. He has built a yeshiva where young men do agricultural work and study Torah with a focus on farming, agriculture, sustainable living, and defense. If you would like to reach out or contribute to this unique institution, you can do so by reaching out to him on his channel. Without further ado, Chacham Mordechai. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast again. We are so honored to have you back, Chacham. Uh, the first thing we wanted to discuss with you was something that's based on your podcast, which you should plug uh, right after I finish this intro. Um, your podcast, you mentioned that why even be Maimonidean? So you made an amazing case. We want to hear your case and expand on it. And if you could tell everybody what your the name of your podcast is and where they could find you. Uh, hey, thanks, guys, for having me on the podcast again. Uh, I follow most of your interviews, and uh, it's truly an honor to be back. Uh, my podcast is called Guerrilla Judaism, you know, spelled like guerrilla warfare, not guerrilla Judaism. It should be in my next podcast, probably. <laughs> and um, it, it, I basically make the case in that pod, in that's a YouTube channel. I make the case in the YouTube channel for a what we today erroneously call Maimonidean Judaism, but I don't really, I, I still have not found a better term for um, what we're doing. So we're going to stick with the imperfect one called Maimonidean Judaism. And I also have a one on Spotify uh, called, uh, I think Fostat. I forgot what it's Actually, this this one was on the Fostat podcast. Why Fostat podcast, podcast, yeah. Uh, which I named after the city in Egypt where uh, Bam taught and lived and produced many of his great works. So that, that's the work I do. And uh, other than that, I live on a farm in Yehuda. I graze sheep. Harambam writes that in a time of, of Shmad, and in a time that you, the world is so surrounded with sin and with uh, Kfirah and with Avodah Zarah, sometimes the best thing is to run away to the Midbar and be alone, okay? so. Uh, I don't know, uh, <laughs> this is a bit too harsh, but this is the a solution I found to living among, you know, civilization. So thanks for that. And yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I'm not the first one, definitely not the first, and uh, not the last, to call for a, 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 what, not a reform, but a return to the way things were done once and to rid ourselves of certain innovations that were made to how the Torah is kept that go against the core values of the Torah. 
Okay, so to break that down, it, it, it's common. Um, many of you who either online or went to yeshiva, you've come across people who will quote Harambam and say things like, oh, Harambam was a creative, original thinker, and he revolutionized Judaism, and he revolutionized Jewish philosophy, and we should follow this revolutionary view. And oftentimes, even myself when I was a kid, I remember looking at that approach as, a, as an innovation, as a sort of modernization of orthodoxy. But when I got older, after I got ordained and after I went to yeshivot, I'm talking about many yeshivot from Mir Yeshiva in, in Brooklyn to Torah Or and Merkaz Arav. I've, 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 I have a lot of mileage in, in both Haredi and the Tilumi yeshivot, like the elite, you know, uh, the elite ones. I've come to realize that, in fact, Harambam is a conservative voice. He's using modern language, maybe, but he's trying to conserve some ancient fundamental principles that he felt in his times were already being uh, compromised and then violated in the worst way. And my whole crusade, as it were, my mission in, in this uh, agitation that I do in real life and in my podcast is to try to bring as many people, including myself if possible, back to what, what can be defined as two main things, pure monotheism and what that means, and a legal, reasonable approach to halakha. And that brings you to Ol Malchut Shamayim. So it's recognizing God as a Jew. And that's not something that uh, is as simple as people think it is. And being bound by the law, being, uh, you know, uh, following halakha. Those are the two things. And even though today, Every yeshiva you're going to go to, every shi'ur klali of the Rosh Hashiva is going to be some exposition of how the Gemara, the Harambam understood the Gemara as opposed to the Tosafot, and every halakha class is going to take into account Rambam's view, 80% of halakha is Rambam, and so on. The whole Jewish world, Orthodox, conservative, reform, everyone uh, is obsessed in, in, in so many ways with, like, basically my Manadean thinking and my, my Manadean law, yet the things that were really important to Harambam philosophically and legally seem to be, uh, fundamentals, seems to have been uh, left on the wayside, violated repeatedly, and uh, that's why the situa situation in the Jewish world is the way it is today, and that's why I uh, complain so much. So can you explain, before we get into why even be Maimonidean, what are some of these, you're saying that there's a lot of issues. For our listeners who are not familiar with what you're talking about, can you explain how Judaism has gone by the wayside in the current age? Okay, so I'll start with the most fundamental basic thing, okay? You ask any child, it doesn't even have to be Jewish, you know, like what's the thing about the Jews? It's unique about the Jews. Uh, what did the what did the Romans uh, in the time of Baichini? What did they see in the Jews that was different than all their other subjects? Okay, these guys, the Jews, they believe in one God. That's important to them. Don't don't. Uh, I was even watching a, 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 a HBO show about Rome, uh, like a reenactment of like Roman stuff, and they, they showed where uh, w one of the Malchai Yehuda, King Herod, came with his people to Rome, 
and they were announcing to the Romans not to mock the Jewish belief in one God, okay? Because the Jews are coming and you don't want to start a fight with them now, right? So that was something that we say the Shema several times a day. We uh, were tefillin, which include, which were basically tying on our heart and in our mind this idea of one God. We have the mezuzah on our doorstep, which we acknowledge this uh, monotheistic belief. And, and it seems that we're, what some would say, overly obsessed with monotheism, right? What's the, what's, what is that? What is that all about? So Rambam um, points out uh, that yes, this is the fundamental um, belief, and it means that you have to negate not only the belief in any other competing gods, but it also means that you can't believe in any intermediaries. You can't have imagined God in a physical form. God doesn't, the deity we believe in does not have feelings. And today we, 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 we practice a religion, the orthodox official view of Judaism has allowed itself to be invaded by these theurgic views, which uh, and that just with theurgy is when you when you believe that you can control the heavens by actions over here. There's even Aramaic words for it. They called it it uh, aruta de letata, right? In Kabbalistic language, awakening. And you, if you do a lower awakening, you can control the heavens and do a, and create a a chain reaction where God, the gods, the powers that be, however you see it, will rain down on you shefa or bounty or whatever the you know your translation for shefa is and these beliefs have um, permeated the J jewish culture orthodox culture and it reached a situation where you know it's comical but you know businesses will hang pictures of some rabbi in eastern europe and some you know dusty old village in eastern europe to ward off rats and mice because he's this gulai against mice he has a spiritual power to he's like better than exterminators and and and, and you know, people with like fortune 500 companies have this picture of the rabbi and like well, what's that you know have mice obviously like rats in the basement like, when you have the picture of the rabbi so the, the, these the ideas that the, the, the it's um the idea that there's a spiritual force that we humans can never understand but we can only control we can control it through magical uh, acts, that is a core pagan belief. That's what Avraham Avinu came to fight against. That's the core Jewish value. What is Avraham Avinu doing? No, there's only one God. He's destroying the idols of his ancestors and calling out in, in the name of Hashem, meaning there's, you cannot control the heavens. You cannot do an Isarusa de Latata, right? A lower awakening to control your destiny in this world. You have to face this, the, the difficult um, cruelty and, uh, you know, un, unknown of, of, of the world rationally, and you can solve the world's problems using the powers that you have from God, from nature. And that's a paradigm shift in human thinking, and that's a paradigm shift that, according to our Torah, in the words of Rambam, you need to continue to defend all the time because the Yetzer Hara, the Dimayon, of us trying to create a magical religion or a magical world to deal with the rational world, to deal with the real world, is a very strong Yetzer Hara, and that brings human beings back backwards. It's a regressive force. And that's the core of Kol Kula, the first uh, uh, um, uh, sentence in Mishneh Torah, right? He starts the, the description of, of Torah Shabbat, the Yisoda Yisodot, 
right? The foundation of all foundations, the Amuda Chokmot, the pillar of all wisdom, Leidashi, Yesham Vishon. So the idea of one God is the core of all wisdom, of all Chokman, of all of civilization, in the view of uh, traditional view of Am Yisrael. And that's where we've fallen by the wayside. We've allowed ourselves to be taken over by mystics and charlatans. And that is bringing us down as a civilization. And, it's, and more importantly, I argue, and I don't need much proof of this, it's obvious this is a violation of our covenant with God to be an ex exclusive, you know, exclusively monotheistic nation. I wonder if a lot, I wonder if people might push back on this idea because the Torah seems to give God a very give a shema a very active role into everything that happens the torah itself puts a lot of you know uh you do this hashem will, will do this you do this hashem will do that you do this it, it you know so the the when people reading the like homash or navi you know and they hear Eliyahu navi stories or they hear like you know all the stuff that go on it's hard for them to see i i think that people find it a little bit difficult to see this ultra rational path when reading Chumash because the Chumash seems to seems to emphasize God's um, intervention involvement, involvement more so than rational elements so I would push back on that and say if you read the Chumash on the contrary what you see is you see a creator that and, and, and this is not my explanation, this is Obama's explanation, that is obsessed with um, rooting out idolatry, he doesn't want any competition. He's, you know, El Canovino can, he's an angry, right. a, a vengeful, jealous God. And whenever you have the angry God of the Tanakh, right, it's almost 100% around issues of monotheism. Okay? That's so not foolproof. Mon That's not foolproof, though. I noticed myself there was a few other there was a few times when God's wrath would come into something like immorality. Yeah, Gilu Arayot as well. Yeah, yes. there is a few. Okay, It's the same motif. Idolatry and and adultery is really the same thing. It's, it's the same theme. You're a betraying another. Thing. You're betraying the other. Yeah, it's being disloyal. I see. I see. Not only that, you're you're selling out what's true and beautiful and holy. For a cheap thrill, there's a common thread. Idolatry is is, is a cheap because because the source of idolatry, the, the, the human. Um, I'm I'm probably not answering the right. Let's start with Tanakh and then we'll get to that. The your the challenge on the Tanakh that's that that the that, that you originally brought up is that well in Tanakh you see there's a quid pro quo between the nation of Israel, maybe civilization at, at times, and God, and my response to that is the quid pro quo is mostly you know, 95% around monotheism. And Harambam explains in the guide that um, the, the understanding, the traditional understanding of that was that a world that's idolatrous, that's pagan, is a world that will self-destruct just because of the, the way it brings humans uh, in, instead of progressing to civilization, they regress to barbarism. So there's a, there's a certain barbaricness to polytheistic views. I, I hope I'm not getting too meta 
on this podcast that I've seen intellectuals greater than myself. I can I can drop these bombs here. This is that kind of podcast, but just this idea that if you look at the world in a fragmented way, a fundamentally fragmented approach, meaning you can be a very high IQ Greek in in uh, in, in Athens, and you can have all of the cognitive ability to understand reality, but since your metapolitics or your metaphysics is fragmented, you come from a world of a sea god and a love god and a war god, so you don't think that you can like uh, compare or find a common thread between the motion of the ocean, the, you know, the, the There's waves. There's no unifying factor. There's no unifying yeah. factor. Correct. There's no unifying factor in your mind. You're going to reach conclusions that are not functional, that are not true empirically. Whereas if you looked at the world in a unified way, okay, you saw the achdut, Hashem, and therefore you see achdut in reality, then you'll begin to um, understand phenomena in its truest form. And by the way, every great scientific discovery comes from a deep understanding of the unity in creation. Right, so, it's the unified field theory. theory. The unified field theory really started the scientific revolution when people stopped believing in the, the compartmentalization of nature and they started seeing it all as a holistic. The world is not random anymore. Right, right exactly. That's yeah. the whole point. So now you can, and, you can and, actually measure and study it. Correct. And I would argue that the same thing could be said about humanistic thinking. So if we humans are ever to understand the futility of conflict and war, the futility of fighting over resources and land when there's enough resources and land for everyone, and the ability for different civilizations to respect each other and live in harmony with each other, that would only come from a, a fundamental view that there's a unity in creation and a unity in humanity. Okay, so, so, so and there, therefore, this is not merely a religious, uh, and I'm, I'm answering your question, it's not just a, 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 like a, a covenant, a breath, a, 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 a deal we have with God that we need to loyally follow. But according to the Torah itself, this is the secret for civilization to reach its, its, its uh, highest point. And um, therefore, God, creator, he who programmed all of this would, uh, like uh, allegorically, would be angry if his creation is going to hell because humans are not fulfilling their responsibility. So God's reactions and God's involvements in the Torah is essentially, in a way, a it's 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 another way of it's another way of presenting our own destruction. In a sense. Correct. Correct. So if we were to if we were to violate the covenant, so on the one hand, we can understand that as traditionally we're gonna get punished directly by God, we're gonna go into exile. But also, Lahavdil, even if God forbid you didn't believe in God, if you abandon the monotheistic um, meta principles, Trouble then your civilization will degenerate. And there'll be famine because you won't know how to allocate resources. You're going to lose wars because instead of planning uh, properly and strategizing, you'll be thinking about what's the right sacrifice to bring to be successful in the war. So your 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 entire approach is is going to bring you to disaster. And the Rambam, the Rambam mentioned the, the reason for the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash is because people right. were too 
they were too involved in astrology and not in like being a normal nation that protects its borders you know like uh, yeah. that, that 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 actually fits into what you're saying yeah as opposed to lahavdil bin atameva tahor the romans their enemies were probably being more rational about their uh the conquest of, of yehuda um than uh, we were about defending yehuda so yeah, so that's uh, so so that's that's my response to what you're saying about the Tanakh being uh, uh, showing a, a quid pro quo relationship with God. It's quid pro quo in the sense that if we're going to be an advanced civilization, we'll succeed. If we're going to be a degenerate civilization, we will fail. And yeah, that's that. And the, the parenthetical point of uh, sexual immorality being one of the things that God gets angry about. Again, that also there's a similar side to that common uh, denominator you know, there yeah yeah common denominator of you know civilizations that have a large degree of sexual morality as we see today end up losing end up disintegrating end up not being able to survive in the long term not having successful offspring and that's something that you don't want to have so of course that would um you know that would make the creator all right he was an interest in, in success of, of human experiment will make them angry so regarding the modern generation which everybody for the most part have jews have adopted a gnostic view of the godhead right the god is yeah like, like with the spirit and everything like that can you explain how that really is the exact same thing and it's it's functionally doing what the torah is going against yeah it's 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 functionally. Uh, I'm going to quote someone who I'm not a big fan of, but in politically. But when it comes to understanding monotheism, this this person was a great one of the great people of this generation was uh, Yish Professor Yishayahu Leibowitz. Now I know that I live in a settlement and I'm surrounded by uh, by Arabs and uh, I'm you know I'm a settler and right wing and so on. But Yishayahu Leibowitz has some important mess, very important points to uh, bring up on this subject. And he, one of my favorite quotes from him is that the success of the Kabbalists in our generation is the final vengeance of the Nivea Sheker over the Nivea Emet of the Tanakh. This is the comeback of the Nivea Sheker. Okay, because ultimately, what is paganism? Right, not the dictionary definition, but the true uh, psychological profile of the Abu Dazara. What's it trying to achieve? What does it do? It's and again, it takes us humans, and it it helps us in a way. Okay, it helps us because we humans are limited, physically, we're limited mentally, uh, intellectually, and sometimes the problems of the world are so great that we don't have solutions. We can't fix. We can't solve a, a disease that we, we don't have answers for. You know, back pain. If you have, if you suffer from chronic back pain, you go to the doctors. Mrs. Judy and the mystify, you'll find the doctors are mystified. They don't understand what to do about back pain. You can't walk. They have, uh, they have to give you, uh, 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 sorry for this, they give you these steroids to get you walking again, right? Or God forbid, you have migraines. Like, we still think, we don't understand, right? So how do you deal with natural phenomena, whether it's pestilence, disease, wars, uh, weather phenomena? You deal with it by, by convincing yourself that there's a heavenly force above that's controlling all of this down to its most minute detail. 
And this sounds pretty religious so far, right? But the, where does this become uh, pagan? It becomes pagan or becomes, let's go, where does it become damaging? It becomes damaging when you're so desperate for Yeshua, you're so desperate for salvation, whatever thing you're suffering, that you begin to, to, to assume or to believe charlatans that tell you that if you just had the right incense recipe, okay, if you just got the right herb, if you just brought the right sacrifice, if you gave the right amount of pidyon nefesh money to the Rebbe, right, or to the priest of uh, the church and so on, you would be saved from the thing that you're suffering, the fear that you have. And that's a very powerful drug, right, that people have. And today, you asked about the, you know, agnostic, our Gnostic view of, of God and the Spirot and so on. It's a intellectualization of this pagan, pseudo-intellectualization of this pagan view that you can affect the heavens above by actions in the world below. And, it, and it's giving it a, a religious Jewish garb. It's dragging the Jewish nation through pseudo-sources, Yani Judaism, of, of a, like an affected fake Judaism is bringing us back to pagan practices. Now, not every one of these practices in Hilchot Avodah Zarah would be considered pure Avodah Zarah, but some would. Okay, there's exactly, you can get into the halachot of it, right? But sometimes it's a pagan mindset, the idea that uh, your sins will be forgiven by going to Uman. The idea that, guys, you want to see something? My sheep. My sheep. <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, I out now. Usually I do the morning grays, but you see them in the background. They're not supposed to come this close to the house, but uh, they, they sometimes do. They're looking for food. Anyway, so where were we? So, 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 so that's where today we're going back towards that, um, towards that uh, um, mindset. Look, uh, I don't know if this is common in your podcast, but on Shabbat, <laughs> I throw it on the ground here, so then in the morning they come and they eat all the vegetable, uh, um, all the vegetables that are left. That is so uh, awesome. That is so awesome. Uh, Underrated. Right. <laughs> so um, you were, you were just. Uh... <laughs> this is too good. So yeah. So so then. You were saying you're touched on Uman. You were, you were saying something about that. I was saying about what? What was the last thing you said? You were talking about Uman. I was talking about how uh, today the way the Torah, the way Judaism is being repurposed as a mystical theurgic system is ultimately a victory of paganism over monotheism. And it spells disaster for us on the basic level that we're violating our covenant with God. Our covenant is that we'll be a monotheistic nation. Our covenant is that we won't be swayed by the Yetzer Hara, okay, whether it's Arayot Yetzer Hara, sexual immorality, or if it's going to be the immorality of pagan thinking. And unfortunately, we're sliding backwards. And, and, I, and that's why I, my my call to this term Imanadianism is a call to tradition, not a call to innovation. I'm saying that our original tradition was to jealously guard our monotheistic faith and remain 
loyal to to to, to Borei Olam, loyal to God, loyal to the Torah, and that's what it is. So, and so, we're not. So I want to yeah. just I want to just uh, ask you something because these capitalistic sources, almost all of them, come after the time of Rambam, obviously as anti-Maimonidean movements, and they all have very dubious origins. That you know they they just they have they're trying to give ancient uh, uh, attribution to those books, like for example, the Zohar, which is written by Moshe de Leon, but saying that it was yeah. a thousand years earlier, it was written by Rishon Yochai, right? To gain some type of uh, circumvent Misora in a way and introduce new ideas in Judaism. But the, the problem is, and what people will have a hard time, even if you, if you take this approach and you accept that this is true, because many people have accepted that this is, this is true, we can't deny this. But the answer that we'll always come back to is that how can you say that such and such Gadol who accepted this, for example, the Ramchal or whoever it is, how can you push back against that argument of, uh, of from authority? You know, the I, I wouldn't I wouldn't even say such and such Gadol. I would say the fact that it's almost unanimous. Yes. Everyone, it's almost accepted by it's, everybody. It's it's every Gadol almost. Yes. So there's a few ways of, of dealing with this. I'm going to choose the most honest, brutal one, right? And, I, I'll, and I'll start by saying that, like, in the past, you mentioned the Zohar. I don't need to spend my whole life fighting these fanfics. The Zohar was written in a, in a very strange Aramaic dialect, okay? In the past, uh, rabbis, would say that you have to you know, they use the term your stomach needs to be full of Talmud and Halakha before you can, and you have to be 40 years old before you read the Zohar. And the Zohar was this, uh, and general mystic readings were considered this bohemian elite thing that Chachamim did after hours, you know, behind lock and key, drinking tea and like uh, that was their thing and it was a secret. And as long as it's that, then I'm not an inquisitor knocking on doors saying like, what are you reading there? Is that good? Is that bad? Like I'm not, it's not, it wouldn't be such a problem. The problem is that, and I'm not referring, if someone came to me and I'm saying this without a hint of irony, if someone came to me and told me, and people do tell me sometimes, you know, Mordechai, um, you don't understand the real Zohar. The whole Zohar is very deep and it's, mystical stuff and you just don't have enough knowledge and enough imagination to understand and it's possible i am not the smartest person i know and maybe these people are smarter than me because that's an option but the world that i live in is being invaded by a vulgarization of these mystical doctrines so whether it's the kabbalah center in california or in jerusalem or whether it's kabad or other hasidic movements or breslev the kind of kabbalah that they're putting out is word for word against the principles of faith, against the foundations of faith. And on the most basic level, whether it's believing in a God that's not a true unity, God is not a one, you know, it's a unity that cannot, there's no other unity like it, right? Or whether they believe that you can control God by doing certain actions, or that you can um, reach God through intermediaries. These are all fundamental principles of faith. So all I need to do is to study the fundamentals and take it seriously for me to recognize that those things are wrong. And no amount of all the king's horses and all the king's men, no amount of rabbis, rebbitzins, Kabbalists, and saints can 
have the right to redefine in such a gross way what it means to believe in God and what it means to be loyal to God. So the argument from, oh, but all the Gedolim said, so, well, if, if it comes to, like, denying Akhdut Hashem, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going with the Torah on this, and I don't, I don't, I don't really care what, when he, whatever Rabbi says. What, I will prob- what you probably do find is that most Gedolim at the time didn't reject the text of the Zohar the way we do today. Okay? But then again, in their times, the Zohar wasn't, some, wasn't in everyone's pocket. They weren't selling them on the street. They weren't teaching every individual that his soul is a literal piece of God and that God's unity is not an atomic unity, but this kind of panentheistic, yeah, complex unity like we discussed in the last podcast. So the, the reason why today the Zohar is under more fire than it was before was because the czar was like you know was put out in the public and now to defend monotheism you can't bring a dubious source but in the past you didn't have to have that war because it wasn't so it, it took a while for us to reach the uh-huh. terrible level of Abadazara that we're in today right it, 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 it was hard to be hard to foresee where it would have gone into it's it, it was new then there was also no printing press, there was also and, no printing and, press. And, and and ideas that commentaries on the Zohar, these things developed over time, like the Ari. Uh, yeah, and the Zohar was popularized. It, it, it was, a, I think, like from speaking to old Sephardic Chachamim that don't even, I agree with them on most things, and like they like the Zohar to them. It was the guilty pleasure of Tomidei Chachamim after hours. It was like going to a show. It was a poetic reading that they did. Things that were kind of borderline forbidden, borderline heretical, but it didn't, it didn't like, they didn't take it as seriously as people do today and as literally. And it wasn't vulgarized to the extent that it's vulgarized now. So once it's, you reach the stage where you're throwing Abadah Zarani and using the Zohar or the Ari as a source, of, for, of course I'm going to shoot that source down. But I think that in the, if you look back at like our, our ancestors, Chachamim, both Chachmei Sfarad and Chachmei Ashkenaz, you don't find the same level of Abadah Zarah. And therefore, there, there wasn't a need to have this terrible machloket over the veracity of this obviously forged yeah. book. Yeah, and the argument from authority is is very weak, in my opinion, because, for example, someone might tell me, hey, you know, um, you don't know, you don't know more than this rabbi, so who are you to say you're a nobody, and I am a nobody, but that's, but that argument's weak, because you can make the Christian, we can make the same argument that, you know, a Christian who knows more about, how can we reject the New Testament if we don't know as much as this pastor or this priest, right? Until we know what he knows, only then can we reject it. Absolutely not. The burden of proof is on the Johnny Come Latelys. It's on the one who. Not only that, like uh, not only that, like the, what is the ultimate authority? What is the authority of all authorities? God. It's it's God. It's monotheism. So if you're denying the perception of God and changing it so radically from our traditional view, and then you you, you can appeal to authority because you're viol- violating the most important authority, the one thing that we do three times a day and verbally and a hundred times a day day in, you know, in in the different micro mitzvot that we do, passing through the door to mitzvah, putting on tefillin, wearing tefillin, all these little things that we do to commemorate this one important principle, uh, that's, you know, more, that that carries more weight and more authority than the words of human beings, be they as great. The implication of rejecting, let's say, for example, this these capitalistic views is that we're saying that 
we're almost saying that you know this rabbi was so great and so well-meaning and so knowledgeable is in a way he's he's spreading sheker he's spreading kind of an idea of god that is not true and that people it doesn't sit well with it's people. hard it's hard for people hard to, accept, to it. accept it it's hard for people to accept it i'm not going to deny that what i'm suggesting is revolutionary okay and part of being revolutionary is being is willing to accept the price and the fate of going against the majority and um and and uh, that's the truth that's the actual truth yes many great people people i respect including rabbis who ordained me and you know i'm very close to on a personal level will think that either i'm wrong or i'm going too far okay I'm not denying that. That being said, I'm calling, if, if you analyze the message that I'm putting out there, which is not my chidush, it's in the words of Harambam and the words of the Geonim and words of other great Rishonim, if you analyze what I'm saying, it ties in to your daily routine. You wake up in the morning when you pray and you say the Shema and you wear tefillin and you do Bikrata Shachar and you read from the Torah, and like everything we do, like the first Masechet Brachot, right? Why does why does the first Masechet in the Talmud, the first tractate of the Talmud, begin with Kriyat Shema? Because what, what better way of teaching the Torah than calling out monotheism? So while what I say is revolutionary and may go against how people see it, I'm ultimately fighting for our most fundamental principle, and to keep that pure. And that's why I think that on a certain level, even though it appears that all these people disagree with me, it's built into their daily routine, the fact that I'm right. It's built into the words they say when they bring in the Shabbat or the, the actions they do when they wrap tefillin. So I'm calling for a return to the fundamentals that we all we can escape i think that i think that part of the confusion when it comes to hashem echad is that the term god's oneness has sort of like metamorphosized into allness do you know what i mean by that instead of god allness, allness god is everything allness one as in everything is included in him has become like the the like the slogan for what god's oneness means so like i go around sometimes and i ask unassumingly and people like well-meaning good people and i've asked them I'm like what what does it mean god is one and they meant because you know everything everything is included in hashem everything is hashem that that is how they're getting trained from young age to think of God as everything as opposed to the to the traditional and 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 fundamental uh, opposite actually way of God's oneness is God's uniqueness in that he is a simple essence simple oneness removed from all and that it that is that is the this idea of the allness of God is just so people just gravitate towards it and they assume it's true and then it just it kind of just takes takes like a persona of its own for the like their whole lives that's what's going yeah, on and then and that feeds into the rest of the theurgic worldview because since everything is included in god then everything is infused with divinity 
exactly. and therefore you connect to God by uh, there's all these intermediaries that you can use to connect to God, and the worship of God goes from this meditative state of understanding that God is completely outside of nature. That it's means that God is not nature. God is not earth. God is not land. God is not me and you. God is outside. It's going from that. Now, um, instead of that powerful meditative experience, which would fuse this uh, mystical, or let's call it meditative, it, it, would, it would fuse this meditative um, uh, asset that we have, where we can like raise ourselves above all of existence and look at the world with pure objectivity. Instead, we become this new age worshippers of nature, shri huggers, uh, uh, or like um, burning man uh, revelers. So it's, I, I hope I'm not being too meta here, but it's like this concept that when you are a true monotheist and you stand before God and Tfilah, the amount of humility that you need, the amount of, it, it, it completely takes you outside of existence. It takes you outside of nature. That's a very powerful experience. You can't really have that if your perception of God is that he exists in everything around you. Exactly. And therefore, these fundamentals are so important to drill into people as soon as they're conscious, as soon as they're able to do so. That, and then it's like the, the view of Hambam is, and the view of the Torah is that you know, we are you know, homo mysticus. We humans, we are uh, fundamentally a, re a religious people. We search for a religious experience. And there is no, we can call ourselves atheists, but we never will be atheists because even when we call ourselves atheists and claim that we don't believe in anything, these, those people that do that will automatically, instinctively, reflexively um, attain these crazy beliefs that are even more ridiculous, more insane, and they'll be more fanatical about it than the religions they run away from. So atheist societies have these why? Because we're hardwired to, to have faith in something. And that religious experience is a double-edged sword. It's a drug that can help you get through a, a hard day. But it's, and that's the good thing, but it also can lull you into complacency and make you into an idiot who won't search for truth and who won't find solutions to problems. Monotheism is a solution to all of that. You have that religious experience, but you're outside of nature. So for a moment, when you fear God, that means you fear nothing else. That means the only thing that you fear is God. That makes you a fearless soul, a fearless individual. And then you can fearlessly look at the world and understand things that one who's full of fear would not be able to understand. And we, we, by, infusing, by infusing divinity into everything, what happens is we turn everything into degrees of, like we, we, we see there's degrees of power in all in objects in in stones in people in, people, in you, you name it and uh, yeah. part, part of like you you were touching on the uh, um mysticus but like even the horizontal society as stacham faur uh, writes about the the idea if you could actually if you i would love if you could elaborate about because um, i think there's a connection here we can we can uh lead into that conversation um how does what we just spoke about how does that lead to a 
a, a vertical society. What is a vertical society, and how? What are what is our goal to? What are we trying to do as opposed to that? So that, that's that's a, that's a that's a good question. It's a good segue into the next segment, which is that I, I quoted earlier the opening sentence of the Mishneh Torah, which is. Yisoda Yisodot, the Amuda Chokmot, the foundation of all foundations, the pillar of all wisdom, is to know that God is one and that he's not divisible. I mean, all the principles of monotheism, right? Um, he starts the Mishneh Torah with that, meaning Torah Peh doesn't have its full effect if this principle isn't internalized. Because what happened, because what the Torah what the Torah does, right? The law, if this answers your question, um, the halacha. It creates a world where all humans are equal under God. That sounds familiar to you Americans, but you know, all, all humans stand before God as equal and our obligations are obligations to God. Okay? There's no obligation to any intermediary between us and God. Okay? The, the, the monarch or the government is, is a functionary. He's a, he, he, he's a, uh, 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 public servant, a public servant, whereas all people otherwise are equal. And, and now the mitzvot, those commandments are expressions of an orderly society that functions on, on cooperation on, and, and on attaining levels of enlightenment. Okay. So the, the, if, if the foundational belief in one God that's outside of nature is pagum, isn't fully enforced, isn't like properly understood, then when you go down the path of studying Torah, you begin to see the mitzvot as magic, as talismans, and as slulot. Uh, so the common example I may have mentioned in the last podcast, right? We have a mitzvah putting a mezuzah. Mezuzah, the Shema is written in the Mezuzah. It's a reminder, it's a testament to our monotheistic faith. You leave your house, you go out into the world, remember that we're a nation that believes in one God, right? Now, if you don't understand that, the one God thing, if that doesn't fit into your mindset properly, what happens is you begin to see the Mezuzah, to view it the way people view it today, as a force field that protects your house from, you know. So people will, unironically, intelligent people with masters and physics will tell you, oh, your kid got corona a second time. Did you check your mezuzah? I heard that if the kuf is smudged in the mezuzah, then you'll get corona once or twice, right? So now you've taken a beautiful, powerful symbol of our faith, and you've turned it into an article of magic, of, of a dazara, which is obviously you know, uh, the opposite of what it's supposed to do. And then, similarly, if you if you view God as fragmented as or not as a fragmented, but as in, in, in everything infused with divinity, then it's easy for charlatans and criminals like Rav Berlin, for example, to come to students and say, since I am a representative of God on earth, since there's this idea of his kashras, and this is something that I didn't make up because he didn't believe. That there's a concept of askashas that through connecting to to, to 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 the tzaddik you can reach God. Since I'm your vehicle to God, there's in order for you to reach salvation, you need to give me a certain amount of money, okay? 
for the shul, for the yeshiva, for myself, whatever, right? It doesn't make a difference. It's pidyon nefesh, it's called. What's pidyon nefesh? Pidyon nefesh is to save your soul. I don't know if these guys copied it directly from the Catholics of the Middle Ages or the same avodazara of the Catholics of the Middle Ages creates the same sort of perversion of religion as we see today in modern Judaism. But I mean, none. Reverland is in Olam Ha'atzilut. So even if he sins, we're just perceiving it as sin because that's that's the idea that they that they spread unfalsifiable arguments. arguments. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a, exactly. And then and 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 had had and yes, like we're we're talking about Rav Berlin now. Maybe for the younger people, Rav Berlin is a criminal and a sex offender and thief and charlatan and possibly a murderer too. But growing up in my time, Rav Berlin was a big deal. He was the father of the Baal Tshuva movement. He brought thousands of people to Judaism. So people left Chiluniyot, uh, they left uh, secular life, life of, uh, and it became God-fearing through this Rav Berlan. Now, Rav Berlan's a famous Breslover, taught Breslov Torah. Had his Torah been, even if he would have been the same flawed human being, let's assume Rav Berlan, we're all flawed. And when maybe human beings, when they're given power, they become crazy, okay? I've never had the amount of power that Berlin has. Berlin has enough power to get people killed. I never had that power, you know, so I don't know what it's like. Let's assume that we're all flawed. But had Berlin thought the Torah that I'm teaching now, that the true meaning of monotheism, that there's no intermediaries to God, right? How morality works. None of his students would have committed a murder for him. Nor would he been able to take money from anyone because the Torah doesn't let you take money for Torah. So the abuses that maybe we all have a Yetzirah, maybe many of us, have that evil side to us, it wouldn't be able to play itself out because it would go against the most basic teachings of, of, of the Torah. But since they pervert the Torah, right, they, that, that gives them the power to uh, abuse their students and abuse their students' wives. And it reached situations where this man was in his 70s, was uh, convicted and admitted on tape uh, to having relations with the students' wives because they were so they saw him as a vehicle to God that you can't argue with. Okay, so th- th- this is an this is a you can argue that oh, I'm just using an extreme example to bash Bressler, and I am. But more importantly, I'm attacking the the because it's not an extreme example. This is he was the top Bres- Shulbani. Real life. I mean, real life. All the whole the yeah. Garden of Amuna series, all that stuff is is based on. They're all his students. Yeah. Today I go to Rami Levy, the biggest supermarket in Israel. They have groceries. They have, uh, you know, chicken, meat, whatever kosher food. It's a, just a supermarket in Eretz Yisrael. It's a big schut. You know, here you are in Eretz Yisrael after two thousand years of, of exile. There's a supermarket. Everything is kosher. But there's a book of religious items, a, a shelf of religious items, and in that shelf there's no sidur, and there's no Tanakh. It's the whole series of Garden of Amuna and Garden of Love and Garden of all these gardens, all this Breslov literature. Okay, so their like religion, like the basic religion of these people today, is is uh, is Breslov. And again, I don't want to, you know, people call these people my core religion. It's just to point out how low we've fallen. And Rosh Hashanah is coming up soon. Um, I remember that last year was the last year. Yeah, the the is is the state of Israel has religious parties. These are the parties that represent religious people. One of their big uh, um, their big platforms, things that they fight for to represent their people is two things. There are two, two things I want to point out. I mean, they have various issues. One of them is that um, that on, on Lagba Omer, they'd be allowed to worship. 
the grave, the Saras, you know, the, the whole fire worship night. Yes, sir, uh, yeah. yeah. Now, if you think about it, the, the entire so-called religious segment of Israel is fighting to have the pagan festival that they do every year on Lag Ba'omer, which has nothing to do with Shimon Bar Yochai, which this whole Hilula thing is a giant um, idolatrous orgy of, of, uh, of, of basically violations of our faith. Or I remember back when the Ukraine balagan started, they were fighting for rights to go to Ukraine. So Shah's party, because so many of their people go to Ukraine for, for including their Knesset members for the for the Uman idolatrous festival. So they, they, they it, it becomes a platform of the religious party. So the parties that are supposed to represent loyalty to the Torah are fighting so that Jews can do like a, a version of Cheta Egel today. There's nothing sadder than that. And uh, I just, I don't know why that, I know why that came up. I don't know how that connects to what we said earlier, but um, it's just something that's worth pondering and repenting over. I call for repentance um, for these terrible sins. Well, I think it connects because the, in the uh, vertical society, which is dynastic now, the Torah is obviously not anti-dynastic, the, the righteous or those who perceive as righteous are basically replacing God. In terms, they, they are in the place of God in terms of how we interact with them, If right? not replacing them below, but but hierarchically. The hierarchically, yeah. they're the highest and they're the spokesperson, spoke people, spoke people for God or spoke persons. Yeah, they're, they're, they're intermediate and therefore you have like back to, to the Verland issue as an example of how faulty thinking, faulty theology, faulty, uh, um, the wrong grounding and, and fundamental principles of monotheism creates fertile ground for the most nightmarish abuses of religion. Of religious leaders okay so and, and, and this is again why do i call for this return to maimonideanism let's go through like just a basic thing we spoke about monotheism rambam says you're not allowed to receive money for limud torah okay you have to work nobody keeps that anymore and they and, and all the great poskim said oh the torah would disappear if we didn't get paid and they have all the reasons why they can get paid Okay, the same rabbis will have all these, um, I don't want to knock the rabbis per se, I want to talk about the principle. Your principle is, again, had we not taken money for Torah, then you would not have a situation, um, you wouldn't be able to have a situation where rabbis or religious leaders t uh, steal or, you know, manipulate their students, their flock into giving them funds that they can't afford, right? Berland was selling magic uh, uh, pills to cure you of cancer for a thousand shekel each. They were taken to the lab and they found out to be like uh, those candies, like chiclets or something. Tic Tacs, yeah. Tic whatever. Yeah. Oh, so and this was this was proven in court, and uh, he said, "Who cares that it's Tic Tacs? I gave it holiness because I'm a vessel of God." Like that abuse wouldn't be able to happen. How would you be able to come to a woman who's married and maybe she's going through marital problems and convince her that God wants? her to have sex with you if you didn't completely pervert religion for decades before that and create a cult around yourself that would allow you to do that. The Gemara says that but they only did so that they can commit sexual immorality in public. 
this is an example. Breslov is a, is a cult that's supposed to be very um, tanua. They spend a lot of time, you know, they, they, do, they invest a lot in sexual guilt. Yet the result is that their leaders are doing gilui arayot, actual gilui arayot with their students. Everyone knew, like their students knew about it. It was just the, the rabbi, he has a right to do that. And when it came out, look at the chilul Hashem that we have today. All of this, this is, again, since it's such an extreme example, but from someone so great and so influential in the Orthodox Chuva world, you can imagine that filtering down in the other communities, there's little examples of that. Maybe not um, a rabbi taking advantage of a student's wives, which is really disgusting. Maybe not selling for a poor people who think their child is going to die from cancer, selling them a candy for you know $1,000 to cure them. Maybe it wasn't that bad, but still taking money from people that can't afford it for spiritual salvation so that you can use it for your own purposes, that is pretty bad. That's bad enough. And all of this, again, comes from a lack of loyalty to the fundamental. Like the, the Forbes list in Israel they released many years ago of like the richest Mekubalim, right? They had like like all these uh, Bukhatseras and they're worth 100 million, 400 million. Like it's, it's crazy, the numbers. So obviously... Uh, we're not saying all of them are bad necessarily, but the fact is that there's all this money, like insane amount of money, being uh, given to these people, and it's what what I think the problem is that people become so attached to these uh, to these leaders to the point where even when they die, and forget about praying at graves, that's one thing, but they're writing letters to them sometimes, they're actually trying to communicate yeah. with them, and there's. Yeah. There's this like inability to to detach from you know what actually you know this is this person passed away like you have Hashem why are you why are we still why are we going the extra mile now now we're not even just visiting graves now we're writing to them what's next what's coming after this and there's just like it it, it leads you down a, you know a spiral that I don't even know what the end is the end could be even worse than that in ten years. So yeah. these, these rituals are becoming kind of more and more crazy. The sugulot are becoming more and more crazy. Sugulot has taken off like, like, re, like it's, it's, it's taken over Judaism. It's rampant. The amount of sugulot, there is, there is literally probably, with no exaggeration, I can probably say there would be like maybe 20,000 sugulot out there right now. More. Yeah. I have a relative that like, that are, just, there are books that are bigger than like encyclopedias. Containing yeah, just all the it's 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 mind-boggling. It's really it's, mind-boggling. Uh, it, it, and this is why we're, we're it's it's upon us. It's incumbent on us to kind of trim down all the fat, trim down all this avodazara, get rid of all of this kind of thinking, and also understand that this is while it seems revolutionary because you know so few people are saying this this is actually our original religion this is our covenant with god and that's and and i don't like the term maimonideanism because it's it when we say this because it kind of makes one think that maimonides is some sort of uh grand figure grand you know who like we follow him no matter what it's just his iteration his expression of these things is the most what we consider the most um authentic Okay, but he's expressing ancient ideas that existed before him and that continue to exist after him. And he correctly foresaw that the world is the Jewish world is being taken over by these dark forces. 
And it's our job to not let that happen. And I think that's something we need to we need to focus on. You know, you know Judaism has a very um, a very high assimilation rate. What is it? And it's it's people always wonder why why are our intelligent Jews like Einstein, for example, why are they abandoning Judaism? Why do they find it compelling if it's such a compelling religion and it speaks of truth and everything? Why are why are people buying it? You know, and we have even in the Kirov world, they have Kirov is mainly run by Haredi or Haredi light, and it's not necessarily a successful movement. What is it that is scaring people away from Judaism? Judaism should be if it's it's a wisdom. The Torah says people will look at us as a wise and understanding people. What is it? Is this do you find that this is a connection? This is the problem. Why people are getting turned off? Absolutely, it's the it's not just that people are getting turned off. It's that. It's that um, the kind of you can argue that we're bringing a lot of people in too. If you depend how you look at the numbers, but you look at the quality of people we bring in, as opposed to the quality of people that leave and the quality of people that don't join us, the picture is different. And then, like if you look at religious Jews as an organism, can we survive if the people that we bring in are low education, low IQ, um, low morality? Uh, people have problems like there's other religions who, who, who feed off uh, crisis. So if you you're in drugs and you're you're vomiting in some alleyway behind a dumpster and your life is going nowhere and then you find Jesus, right? Yeah, if that's the kind of if that's what we're attracting. That's the kind of people we're getting to. Then the kind of civilization that will be won't be great. And at the same time, we're losing scientists and doctors and lawyers and professionals and uh, academics that's not a good thing and i don't know that what i'm doing can bring back and can do curve on the elite i don't know that what i do know is is that what i think rather we should focus on is us uh, god-fearing loyal jews who grew up in orthodox um, upbringing who uh, who think what i'm saying makes sense and look up the sources and see that i have no personal vested interest in this and this is all Hashem Shamayim and so on will take upon themselves to go on this path and teach that to their children and to their students if they're in a position of power as rabbis or, or teachers and so on. A community will develop organically around that and then uh, the retention rate of that community will be much higher because you, we're going to have intelligent people, we're going to have better people and we'll grow maybe in smaller numbers but we'll grow as uh, we were intended to, uh, like you mentioned, Am Chacham Venavon, Goya Gadol Hazeh, right? We're going to be a nation of of, uh, of, of intellectuals that can be looked up up to, rather than a nation of savages and primitives that are detestable. So, um, as as this, the Berlin story illustrates today, okay. So I think that I don't know. I'm not optimistic. That you know me personally, because when you do care of, you think of care of you, you you don't just bring people to an idea. You also bring them to a community. And right now, we are like an underground converso community. People like myself who agree with me, and they exist. If they live in a regular Orthodox shul, they have to be quiet about their beliefs. They have to temper it and not get into fights with people and so on. So I don't. Ha even if I were to be mikarev someone, where am I going to be mikarev him to? Okay, so until we have a critical mass, until this revolution takes off, um, we have to focus on probably the revolution needs to come from people who are already observant. The Torah is important to them, who read the Shema every day, right? Who the, the, the leap from 
classical orthodoxy to what I'm saying is not huge. It's just opening your eyes to the text that you read every day and to the actions that you do every day. So once that happens, then we can maybe uh, bring people from the outside and, 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 and do, you know, outreach. Very well said. You know, I, I also think that people aren't studying history. People are not yeah. learning what happened. They're, they're, they're being told a very cherry-picked version of what happened, and they're accepting it. And, and we, have to, we have to do a favor to ourselves and to our ancestors. We, we must get to the bottom of the problem. Why, is there so, why are we still in Galut? Why are we still in exile? There's a problem here. And we can't keep making the same mistakes and expecting different results. You know, every generation, there's like a, a false messiah. Every generation, there's more and more segulot, and there's more and more, uh, like you said, a, a vulgarity. So what do we do to kind of stop it? And like you said, it's not going to start, it's not going to become some massive movement, but that's how Judaism started. Judaism started from one man, and, and it took off eventually, but it started from the few, and eventually it trickled down. So uh, I hope that I hope that uh, with your teachings, you know, you can inspire some people to not 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 necessarily, you know, like you said, it's, this isn't a reform movement. We're getting back to the classical tradition. It's a fundamentalist movement. The fundamentalist some of my some of my uh, opponents call me like a Wahhabi Jew because like they think I'm like like uh, like the Saudi uh, Wahhabi movement was just to you know return to fundamentals. Monotheism. So, um, you know, I, it's it's mostly incorrect, but not completely. I, I think that the point that that people need to understand and might drive home uh, more than anything is that uh, return to classical Judaism it solves problems, and people don't realize the amount of problems that that we have. We don't realize it. We don't realize how many people are being taken advantage of how many scandals are going on, uh, how we've, you know, perverted religion. And it's, it, it has a trickle down effect. People are affected by this. You know, I'm, I, I maybe shouldn't say this on, I've had personal experiences where I know of, I, I don't want to get into, but I know someone who let's say was sick and, you know, uh, you know, a rabbi will tell that person that, you know, if you don't do X and X, you know, like, you know, you're going to get sick again. You know, these are things that are just absolutely unacceptable. It is not behooven for a society, you know, and I just wish that people would understand that the return to monotheism, the way you bring it out, um, it, it's, it's trying to create a society uh, of justness, fairness, goodness, where everyone is respected and everyone uh, is, is, uh, is, you know, not taken, advantage not taken advantage of, you know what I mean? And these points, may, this is not all the points, there's, there's more uh, philosophical points and there's many points as, as we were going through mm -hmm. in the podcast. But I think that just the, from the standpoint of, you know, the benefits of monotheism practically, practically for a society, um, it's a shame that we've not grown a community um, that, that follow this path because this, would be, this is a community that if people would buy into it and if you would have enough of it and if it would grow, it, it would it would so organically like it, it would it benefit it would benefit it would be a good society you just have to you and know the Torah, the Torah, with it. The Torah constantly so this, is a, this is a good time to bring up a few uh positive points or um uh, things that are a little bit more optimistic 
if you're talking about building a community, yes, we don't yet have a sustainable community, but online, it appears that we do. You have this group in the UK, the Khabura, and it's now all over the world. And while, you know, various Maimanzians can disagree with different points of what goes on there, at the end of the day, they're on board with Tarashabal Teh, they're on board with monotheism, and uh, you have uh, great people there that are basically a community, including rabbis and academics and, and, and lay people. So you can see the beginning of that in organizations like that and in other places where you see people get together to do these things. But also, I think like we can summarize that if you the list of problems that we would avoid and we fix by just following our tradition, not doing anything new, not doing anything fancy, right, is like you said, the abuses of religion would be very hard, if not completely impossible, right? Rabbis can still out, be... You take the mystique out, it's very hard to take yeah, you, can, you can't steal money from people, you can't uh, manipulate them, you, you know, you won't be able to charge converts $10,000 to convert, because again, the first thing you would teach them is like, you know, you can't take money for Torah, so what's this high price, right? So it, it would solve all these things. And it would solve um, the problem, the, the spirituality problem, the, of the, not just on a, on, a, on, a, on a level, like a national level or a communal level, also on, a, on an individual level. A person would be able to reach states of fearlessness and like his internal, our internal selves would be able to max out if we truly believed in God with no intermediaries. Because then, as we mentioned earlier, you won't have fear of any anything else, right? You'll be able to um, the, the the benefits besides for just being loyal and following the Torah, which is the greatest benefit. The benefits to us individually and communally are so great that uh, I just urge everyone who hears this podcast to consider this. And and if you think what I'm saying is a little bit too controversial, a little too uh, yeah, too, too uh, belligerent maybe just do some more research and look up the sources and look up the rest of my podcast and the rest of Judaism and the Mystified and uh, see for yourself if what I'm saying rings true or not. Right, and these are conversations we're having. People are welcome to have conversations as well, you know, in a respectful way. Um, I think do you guys allow comments or, or you stop that? You know what? We were getting flooded by like, when we did a, an interview with Tobias Singh, Rabbi There's Tobias a Singer, lot of spam. That's the problem. So much spam, copy and pasting from, especially the most comments we're getting from Christians, <laughs> and it just got like to the point of just trying to handle it. So well, maybe yes. turn it on. Yeah. Yeah. Let's turn it on and see what happens. Maybe we'll get lucky yeah. and there won't be that much spam, yeah. and we can actually. So you can still delete it, yeah. Yeah, we can delete it. Yeah, we'll turn it on. Right, we'll, Let's turn, we it on. turn it on. But but I wanted to say about what what you just said is that the Torah actually is constantly telling us about protecting the orphans and the widows and poor people and old people and hating Amalek. We detest Amalek. Why? Because yeah. he preys on the weak, right? The weak. And and we and we as as Jews are protecting, we're constantly protecting the weak. So when I, as somebody who experienced this from familial uh, point of view, I have a direct experience of somebody getting sick in the family who went to Mikubal, you also Same. went to Mikubal, someone went to Mikubal, gave a lot of money to this person with all these promises, and then the person ends up dying, and then it's not it's not them that's the problem. It's not, it's this, not the segula or whatever it is that's the problem. The problem is in the person the, didn't do it right, didn't do it the, the correct way. He just missed the exact point. There was a point of, uh, 
there was like one point where they could have done it and like he missed it. Yeah, they have all these like they have all the and then when they have one success, they do a thousand charlatans. So one thing that goes right, one thing becomes a story that everyone talks about and now yeah. everyone believes in it, and he has a thousand more customers. That, that's how yeah. there's, a, there's a term for this which I've which I've started. I love now. I I learned this term and I'm always using it now. It's an unfalsifiable argument. And it's considered to be one of the weakest arguments you can possibly give in, in the academic world. Yeah, prove to me yeah. there are no invisible unicorns. Yeah. Prove it to me. Unfalsifiable argument. An argument that you basically, they set up for you not to be able to say anything. That whatever you say, there's always going to be something to say around it. So basically, we can't have a conversation. That's really yeah. what it means. Yeah. yeah. And it's sad because, you know, you look at the, you look at the Gemara, it's all conversations. You know what I mean? That our, our greatest rabbis, they engage in conversation. You know what I mean? Um, it, it, today, people, it's almost like you, you're not allowed to have a conversation. It's part yep. of the problem. It's, prob- it's part of the control factor. Yeah, to shut up a part of your you brain, know what I mean? you know, to question things. You know? So, so you know, uh, we appreciate so much having you on. Um, Thank you so much again. I appreciate it. It's again, been we've fun. had some ideas of what we might yeah. do. Um, and we get a lot of messages about, about people wanting to see you back on the podcast, so we can make this whole <laughs> Oh, you got that? That's nice. Thanks, yeah, all. Yeah. Thanks, guys. So, so, yeah, if we can do this uh, every once in a while, it would be nice. All right. All awesome. Right. Thanks a lot. Are, are you hear the sheep in the background? I the heard sheep it. Are, yeah, yeah, we heard it. We heard thing. it. All right. How many, how many interviewees, how many people do you interview that are shepherds? You're the first. Probably first? the first oh. and last, yes. <laughs> <What? laughs> see what Maybe happens. The, Maybe we'll start a trend of monotheism and uh, animal husbandry. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for this time. Bemed, we appreciate it. And yeah, we'll send you a copy when this is uh, finished. Amazing. Appreciate it. Bye. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys.